I thank God that I was raised in the CD. It just felt like there was always somewhere to go. It felt limitless. I mean, it was just brown people everywhere. I stopped at the Black and Tan many times that night. Oh, it was the best barbecue in the world. But we used to call it Nasty Brothers. But you couldn't get alone outside of that. They called it redlining. She said, but there's only one thing. They don't let women buy commercial property. Only men. Like one minute I'm living in a neighborhood where I know everybody and everybody knows me in the next minute. It's a very loving community. Like my parents have been in their house 70 years. I mean, where are you going to buy crackling from? Everybody's like, oh yeah, you just got to go to the promenade. It was, it was black people everywhere. Everything was here. I mean, everything. Welcome to Shelf Life a podcast that uses community stories to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Seattle Central District neighborhood, also known as the CD. I'm Myla. I'm Jill. And I'm Dominique. We're three people who didn't grow up in the CD talking to folks who did. I said, now, within 30 minutes, I'll have so many people down here picking this school that it'll be so hot for you, you'll have to go up to Alaska to cool off. I said, that's going to be a baby in that algebra class. Now, you can put her in there or me and about a half a dozen NAACP members in that algebra class. Take your choice. One of my favorite interviews was one we recorded with Cecil Beatty and his daughter, Phyllis Yasutaki, who attended Franklin High School. She was down in Franklin, like she said, and uh, I don't know much about girl stuff, but the kids are fixing their, their holes with lipstick. Is that what it was? Oh, fingernail polish. Fingernail polish. Fixing to run in the lake. <laughs> fingernail polish. And <clears throat> got to her. They passed it to her, and they put her out of class and put her in a study hall. And I found out about it and talked to the principal. And he gave me a lot of lip. And I told him, I says, well, I tell you what, my wife is secretary of NAACP, and I forgot what I told him I was. Your, and your, and your uh, lawyer is president, and, and your brother-in-law is the chairman of court. Yeah. Next thing I know, they yanked out of that study room and put it back in the algebra class. And I went down that school so much. One of the kids down asked me one day, says, what class do you teach? I've I never <laughs> been in your class. <laughs> then, then when they found out it was my dad, they said... Is your dad in school again? Why is he always here? I mean, Franklin was very, very racist, so my parents were always down there um, fighting. One of the first questions we ask people when they sit down for an interview is to talk about their experiences in school. We've heard some funny stories and some joyful ones, but we've also heard a lot of difficult stories. So in this episode, we'll hear from people who advocated for themselves and others, people who endured the well-intentioned failure of integration and busing, and people who discovered the importance of neighborhood schools. Well, my name is Leslie uh, Webb Womack. I was born in Seattle, Washington. Junior high school, I was not allowed, we had to pick a book to read, and I picked uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X and was told that I could not read that book. That could not, and so my father had to come down and deal with that. And he had read the book, didn't see why I couldn't read the book, and so I eventually got to read the book. But the same thing at Franklin, I was on the college track, and actually, I could have graduated at 16. The principal, I remember my father going down and 
and Mr. Hanawalt saying to my dad, saying, you know, she's really bright. She goes, but you probably don't want to put her in college right now. But I did have Josephine Funderburg, who is black and a church member and a very good friend of my grandmother's and also a neighbor, um, who was my guidance counselor. So it was never even a question. I mean, the reason why I was able to graduate at 16 was because of her. You know, so you had to have someone in your corner. If you didn't, you could easily just kind of fall through the cracks. No one was going to champion for you if you didn't have someone. And that's one of the benefits of not busing because my parents felt if she's way out in the north end, we can't get to her. We can't just walk into the school in the middle of the day. So they, they did not agree with busing. Unfortunately, a lot of students did not have anyone in their corner. Mark Cook shared a story with us that really captures the profound ways that racism in the schools shaped lives. I broke a window in high school. Okay, I was going to Queen Anne High School. And I had a lot of change out of my piggy bank. That's heavy stuff. So I was going, went to the cashier in the mess hall. The mess hall, the cafeteria. <laughs> this is in Queen Anne High School. And I asked the girl there who was a student, I said, could you change this to cash for me? And she said, sure. And uh, one of the adults, uh, supervisors came along and says, no, you don't do nothing for those kind of people. And I just blew it. I threw a, we had milk bottles made out of glass in those days, you know, and I just took it and threw it. It happened to go through a window that's on the third floor. And so they kicked me out of school. You know, I waited for my buddy to get out of school to go home with me. And I was looking at the trophy glass and uh, the uh, principal said, you have to leave now. I got mad and kicked it. <laughs> I broke that too, you know. I was just kicking because I was mad. It helped me to understand nowadays how they're treating kids, how they're suspending them and stuff. You got to talk to them. You, know? you just can't kick them out. You got to talk to them, find out what's, what's, what the problems are. When I went home, I told my mother, I was about 17 years old. I, I said, Mom, I told her what I did. And I said, I want to go in the Air Force. I need your permission. And I'll pay for everything, I believe me. And she said, sure, it's fine with me. The morning I woke up, two Seattle police officers were there. They arrested me for third degree assault. The judge would not put me back in the juvenile training school. He sent me to Northern State Hospital, I think it was, for observation. They said nothing was wrong to me. I had the papers when I came back. But a judge sent me for indefinite commitment in there. For, and indefinite commitment means you could be there for the rest of your life. And that is a scary place. So that's what I went to the hospital for. When we interviewed Mark, we learned that the incident at Queen Anne High School really determined his path for the rest of his life. Once it was on his record that he had been sent to a mental hospital, he couldn't join the military as he'd hoped and was unable to get a job. He ended up in the Washington State Penitentiary, where, by the way, he founded a chapter of the Black Panther Party and ran an underground prison newspaper. But how different would Mark's life have been if he hadn't been subjected to so much institutional hatred in high school? Whether they were being bused across town or attending the school down the street, Black students and their parents had to fight against negative stereotypes and a system that did not want to teach them. Harriet Walden talks about what she did to protect her children from that reality. The other thing that we agreed on, that we would never let the descendants of the slave masters teach our children and take our children's mind. Somebody in the classroom accused him of stealing something, and he didn't do it. And I went up to the school, and they found out that he didn't do it. And I, had to, I made the teacher apologize. 
because I wasn't going to have everybody thinking that my child was a thief. And so I handled that. And another occasion, uh, my youngest son is an excellent writer. He wrote some kind of paper, and this teacher didn't believe he had had those experiences, and I had to go up there. And I had to go and tell her uh, that he's had lots of experience. He has been kayaking up in Canada. He's done this and that. And no, he's not lying. I say, and then, you know, the bias of the thinking that the black kids haven't had any experiences. And um, the English teacher just kept marking his papers down and act like he couldn't write, and it was terrible. And um, I called her, and then she admitted that he was brilliant. I said, well, why didn't you make him a TA then? Why didn't you make him a TA if you knew he was brilliant? So I taught my children at home. I sent them out to the school, but I taught my children at home. I made sure that they knew their history. I made sure that they knew that they were smart. I don't believe that sitting next to white children is going to make my children smart. They knew that they were already smart, and I was determined that their fallback and their subconscious mind would be blackness, not whiteness. It would be blackness. My name is Stephen David Sneed, actually. I go by Steve Sneed. I was born in 1956. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. I grew up here in the CD, yeah. Born in the CD, <laughs> literally. So there was an effort where they did a school boycott. And this was led by the black churches, Mount Zion, First AME Church. There was uh, an effort to to basically allow black children to go to schools in other neighborhoods. Uh, because the, the thinking was, our schools in the central area are subpar. One, because the teachers are, usually they're young, and they come in, they get trained, and then they move them out. And, um, and then just the buildings themselves, and, you know, there were, there, the books, you know. The, the, so black parents just wanted the opportunity for their kids to be able to go anywhere. And so they boycotted the schools. They took two days and they took all the children, all the black children came out of the schools. Actually, some white children as well, Asian children as well. All came out of the public school system within the central area. And they had freedom schools. And so they took the kids to churches and community centers and did black history education <laughs> for several days. They did that for several days. And it made such an impact that the school system then started the process, which then ended up being busing. Here's a little bit of context. In 1954, you have Brown versus Board of Education, right? All of a sudden, segregation in the schools is determined unconstitutional. Everyone has to integrate. Now in Seattle, because of redlining and housing discrimination, the schools are highly segregated too. So, Seattle Public Schools tried a few different tactics to balance out the racial demographics between the predominantly white north end of Seattle and the predominantly black south end of Seattle. Just to give you an idea, in 1961, Garfield High School was 51% black, even though the entire school district was only 5.3% black. In 1978, 24 years after the Brown decision, Seattle initiated the Seattle Plan, which was a district-wide mandatory busing plan that bused black kids from the South End to schools in the North End. Seattle was the largest city in the country to voluntarily do this. There was some grumbling, but overall it was accepted. There wasn't any violence or protests around the program like there were in other cities that had done a similar thing. That busing, culturally, it was hard on people. It was hard. I, I bust for three years. It was so difficult for me to come out of Horace Mann and go to BF Day for 
you know, fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. By sixth grade, I said, I got to go back. At BF Day, it was like I was, you know, I was in a a hole or something. You know, there, there were no good experiences that I can remember. And I can remember sitting down in sixth grade with the phone book, trying to figure out how to get myself transferred back to Washington. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how it actually happened, but I ended up back at Washington by seventh grade. And my mother would come to the school at Washington. She would be in the hallway and stuff. And my sister taught one of the classes, my older sister at Washington. So it was much more community, right? When I was at BF Day, I was all alone. You know, I'd bus out there and, and it seemed like an eternity. It seemed so far away. <laughs> so then I went back to Washington and it was depleted. You know, there was nobody there. My graduating class of Garfield, in, I graduated in 1974, was, there was 99 students at Garth that, in that graduating class. The program was supposed to work both ways, with white students from the North End also being bused to schools in the South End. But white families started pulling their kids out of the schools, moving them out of the district, or putting them in special alternative programs or private schools. The plan wasn't working, and the schools continued to be segregated just in a new way. The whole thing was confusing and complex. It was hardest on the students. Here's Zola Mumford. I could have walked to either Franklin or Garfield, but the busing program came in and I was assigned for uh, middle school to go to Eckstein in the North End. Um, I had some terrific teachers. Um, it was incredibly polarized racially, racial slurs, um, people dead set on sticking to their own group. I was kind of a nerd, so I hung out with multiracial nerds. <laughs> Getting up in the dark and going out to wait for that bus on 31st. Um, I would usually take books, something to do. A lot of the kids who were on the bus with me were the type who were really excited about calling me an Oreo. At the time, it just felt like I was being piled on by every bully possible. Sometimes the bullies also felt like grown-ups. When I went to Leshi, they, um, during one of the periodic achievement assessment measuring test times, this is uh, the 70s, so of course, you know, you're filling in these shaded bubbles on a form with a number two pencil. My scores were high, even though I was already in the gifted program, and so they took me into a separate room um, some adults and a teacher, uh, administrators, I guess, and they made me take the test again with folks watching me. At the time, I just thought, oh, maybe I didn't color these bubbles in dark enough, like they said. I went home and told my mom, and she got on the phone. And stuff like that would happen to me often um, at Eckstein or other places. I, you know, um, we were a book family. We had lots of books in the house, and. Um, I would be walking around with a collection of Ibsen plays because I'd read about it somewhere else. In fact, I still have that book of Ibsen plays, and you know, then I'd have these white adults saying, uh, "Do you understand that?" Middle school is, I think, difficult for most people. <laughs> I know that when I was on that bus and usually reading or trying to avoid the people fighting in the back, I once we crossed that Montlake cut, it's like, okay. If something happens to me here, I know I feel like I can call for help, right? It's going to be an adult who will help me from not just immediate family, but the extended community I had. It would be different. 
I remember one time being on that bus, coming back, and a van pulled up alongside it. There were two young black men driving it, and one of them pulled out this red, black, and green flag and waved it at this kid. I mean, you know, it's a bus full of black kids and like two or three working class white kids and some mixed race kids getting bussed, and he's holding this flag, and he's like, yeah, and all the kids scream and start doing the power fist back. <laughs> Those were some strange times. I, I think it was a terrible idea, the whole busing program. And uh, I, But on the other hand, I have no idea what the alternative is. It did teach you something about human nature, that there are good people everywhere, even in the most horrific situations, and that sometimes you simply have to develop some resilience and tenacity because things are going to be out of your hands. The Central District was where I could be creative or want to see creative things and not be afraid of everybody. There had always been groups of people opposed to the busing program since it had been introduced. But the longer it went on, the more people didn't like it. By 1999, the busing program was done, 21 years after the program started. One of the ways we like to think about this project, Shelf Life, is that it's not meant to be nostalgic. Stories from the past give us ways of thinking about what's currently happening around us. Last year, the Seattle Times reported on a study out of UCLA that found that nationally, public schools are more segregated now than they were 60 years ago. In Seattle, The Stranger reported in 2016 that there are currently 20 schools in the Seattle public school system, which are 90% or more students of color, indicating a significant resegregation of the city's schools. The issues and the stories of the past are still very much a part of our present. Which brings us back to the Central District and its stories. Racist housing covenants, redlining, and economic apartheid are part of what made Seattle so segregated in the first place. The city, and the nation for that matter, never addressed the inequities that resulted from decades of segregation and institutional racism. So, of course, those inequities continue to be an issue in our public schools. And then we had another friend. His family lived in... I think it was like assisted housing. I think they were homeless and then had moved into housing right across the street from Garfield. That's Bridget Albright. She lived in the CD for more than 20 years, where she's raised three children and two foster children. And he had younger siblings that went to Washington Middle School. And I think it was his senior year, they got housing further south. And so they were told that he could no longer go to Garfield. The principal and the football coach and a couple of families kind of all said to the school district, Wait, he needs to stay for his senior year. Like, we actually don't care where he's living. So we they got an exception for him. But again, it was like the principal and the football coach all going to the school district saying, you can't relocate this kid for his senior year. Um, and then it was a lot of the families saying, we'll pick up, we'll like, we'll drive him back and forth to practice, right? Because it's like, I mean, his family would love for him to stay, but they got three, like, but now they live down on Rainier Beach, they can't get them practices go to 8 o'clock at night. So, you know, like, everybody kind of just said, yeah, we'll drive him. Higher education offered opportunities for students to find community and build movements. At both Seattle Central Community College and the University of Washington, students came together to form Black Student Unions. My name is Christy Brown, and so I ended up going to Seattle Central when I graduated. And that's really where 
the magic started to happen. I really got involved a lot with the Black um, Student Union. And I, I feel like it was just about just mobilizing people and making folks aware, you know, that there is something to be said for building community inside your particular culture. Not that it's just for you, because it isn't. But I think at that time it was just about just pulling folks together and feeling like, okay, you know, there is space for you. There is a place where you can get encouraged and you can learn. I just feel like during that time I got so many opportunities to learn. I, I wrote a lot, so it felt really good. It felt good to have that support. My name is Vicki Ann Bernadette Garner. Moved here to Seattle when I was nine years old in 1960. I remember the riots that kind of broke out. Then when I got in Seattle Central, I remember we did a we were forming a black student union. Larry Gossett was one of the people that helped form the black student union. And we walked out of school one day, we chained the doors. We could see um, these big black cars that, you know, and flash bulbs going off and it's like, I'm like, who are the, is that the news people? And someone was saying, no honey, that's the FBI. You know, you're going to have a file with them. I'm Stephanie Johnson, Tolliver, hyphenated, born here in Seattle, Washington. Cleveland was a really interesting place for me in, in the 60s. We didn't have a black student union. And my sister was then attending Cleveland. She's a year and a half younger than me. And she was even more of a rebel rouser. So she, with three other students, started the Black Student Union at Cleveland High School. And we sat in because they said we could not use a room to meet in um, at the high school that if we wanted to have a black student union, we had to meet somewhere else. And, and they even gave us, I don't remember now how, what the distance was, but it had to be a certain distance from the school. So we all sat on the floor and parents called and, you know, suspended and gone home. And that was the first time too, where I saw my mother actually get so angry you know, and she was using words I hadn't heard before. So she came up to the school with uh, a very good friend of mine who was sitting in, you know, with us, uh, Donna. Her dad was then um, very active in the NAACP. So he comes up with my mom and just reads the school, the riot act. Uh, we did end up getting to use the, um, the cafeteria for our meetings after that encounter. So that, you know, and so from then on, it was like everybody was, your mom is cool. We love your mom, you know. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Yeah, she's cool. By 69, I was getting ready to head off to college and wanted to go to the U. And I got this opportunity to go to Whitman and Boy, uh, so conservative. But um, I've always said, you know, I, I wanted to be Angela Davis at that time. I wanted to, you know, raise my fist. And being one of four black women 
on the entire campus and not even 10 men at that time. Ooh, I didn't have anybody raise the fist too. I, like, you know, yeah, created a little bit of a ruckus, became um, president of the Independent Women for the first year and then found my way back to Seattle and to the University of Washington, to the Office of Minority Affairs and worked with Larry Gossett. I, I first met, it was Aaron Dixon, as part of this whole Black Student Union and the University of Washington with Larry Gossett, uh, had a friend um, who lived next door to the Dixons on 34th up in Madrona. I would go over to her house, and both of us, it wasn't just me, we'd both sit on the porch and wait for the Dixons to come out. Wait for them to come out of the house like, you know, they were rock stars, right? They'd be wearing the black berets and the black leather jackets, and we'd give them the, you know, the black power sign. Like, hey, Elmer, Aaron, woo, you know. That's so embarrassing when I think back on it now. While many people we interviewed talk about blatant racism in the schools and teachers who can't see the brilliance of black kids, there was always a sense that the neighborhood schools, at the very least, were in the community. Parents, neighbors, friends, and people you knew as a kid were nearby and could advocate for you, even when you didn't know that you needed an advocate. That was Vivian Phillips' experience. The schools in the central area were also an extension of the community. They were not these separate institutions run by a small group of parents who had the money and the authority to influence how the system worked. The system worked for us. And everybody who worked in the schools knew that. It's not to say that there weren't racist teachers But, you know, Maxine Mims was the sixth grade teacher at Coleman. When I was in sixth grade, I did everything I could to get out of her class. I succeeded. I did not land in Ms. Mims' class. But um, my class was in the portable next door to Ms. Mims' class. And um, she was an incredible role model. She wore suits and high heels every single day. Every day. And... She didn't care if you were in her class or not. She knew that she was um, an African-American female role model for all those kids. And so she was the safe person we could go to regardless. And she took that on. When I moved on to uh, Washington Junior High School was when black history was introduced into the school system. So I was in one of the first black history classes. And I came home and cried probably all evening because I came home and I said to my mom, what are slaves? How come you didn't tell me, you know? I had no information about slavery. And it wasn't until um, black history was expanded for me at Garfield that I understood that black people didn't come from slaves. It's like nobody, I, I didn't understand anything about the transatlantic slave trade until I read Before the Mayflower, which was 
in high school. And my teacher, one of my teachers, Sally Pangborn, she was a white woman, and she took a group of black kids, and she told us the truth. And she taught us from these books that were radical books. She taught us, you know, she taught about the Black Panthers, even though we, most of us had already, like, joined the Panthers by the time we got to high school in some way. Um, but she told the truth, and they fired her. She was fired because she, she felt it was important that we knew more about who we were. And so when they fired her, um, she invited us to come to her house. And she taught us at her house. And then they reinstated her. The schools were safe havens. People who lived in the neighborhood went to the schools. You can follow Shelf Life on Twitter at Shelf Life Story, on Instagram at Shelf underscore Life underscore Stories, and on Facebook at Shelf Life Community Story Booth. Engage with us and let us know what you thought of the episode by using hashtag Shelf Life Pod. You can listen to all of our published community stories online at ShelfLifeStories.com. Shelf Life is a community story project that is recording and sharing oral history interviews with people who have roots in Seattle's Central District neighborhood. We are artists, filmmakers, historians, entrepreneurs, librarians, activists, and neighbors. Our goal is to amplify, preserve, and learn from the voices, experiences, and histories of Central District communities. We hope these stories can contribute historical context to the conversations that shape the way we think about change, community, displacement, and growth in Seattle and in cities around the country. Shelf Life, the podcast, was recorded, edited, and produced by Jill Friedberg, Myla Ina, and Dominique Meeks in Seattle, Washington. Original score by Bubba Jones. Special thanks to King County for Culture for the grant that makes this podcast possible. The stories featured in the podcast were recorded in 2016 and 2017 by Jill Friedberg, Myola Ina, Dominique Meeks, Henry Luke, Chieko Phillips, Leilani Lewis, Rachel Kessler, Sarah Post, and Lulu Miles. Thank you for listening. <laughs>